Hello and welcome to episode 372 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. That's Ben Olson. Together, we're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. If you want to be LSAT famous, you can get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. This show is going to air on Monday, October 17th. There's nothing super pressing happening right now. The uh, October LSAT just happened on uh, October 15, uh, 14, 15. We'd love to hear how that went for you. If you want to email us, the score for that test is going to come out on November 2nd. And next registration deadline is not until uh, December 1st is our registration deadline for the January 2023 LSAT. Come to uh, my free classes, please. Every other Friday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, I do a free LSAT class. Uh, The next one coming up on Friday, October 21st is called How Do I Know When I'm Ready? Uh, Hopefully come join so we can talk about uh, how to decide whether you should or should not take the official LSAT. How are you going to know when you're ready to take the official LSAT? I would imagine it has something to do with your practice test. It has everything to do with your practice tests. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you done a lot of practice tests? Are you happy with the scores? Yeah. If the answer to both of those is yes, then you probably can go ahead and take the test. If the answer to either of those is no, then maybe not, especially the second yeah. one. If you're not happy with your practice test scores, then you don't have any business taking an official LSAT. But there'll be a lot more in uh, that class. So come to lsat.link forward slash Nathan if you want to register. You'll just need a uh, free LSAT Demon account, which you want anyway, because there's all kinds of cool stuff available for free at lsatdemon.com. Today on the show, let's see, what do we do? We had a bunch of mailbags. We did a logical reasoning question from Prep Test 73. Yep. And we started off with some helpful tips about task management. Should we do it? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump in. Okay, Ben, you uh, put this thing here on the agenda, the four D's of task management by Ashley Jansen. Yeah, I just came across this this week. Uh, It was a good reminder for me. I've heard these ideas before, but like a lot of things in life, you just stop doing them (laughs) as religiously as you probably should. So every day, every week, I have a list of things that I'm trying to get done And the four D's of task management that she's, that Ashley is talking about is deleting tasks, delegating tasks, deferring tasks, and then doing tasks. And I don't do enough of the first three, deleting, delegating, and deferring, right? I let things pile up and then somehow give them more importance than they actually have. And there's never going to (laughs) be an end of things to do. Right, The world is full of problems. Our lives could always be better, even if they're going amazing. There are things that we just want to do more of or improve or whatever. But the problem with having a task list, especially on a computer or a phone, is that it can just grow every day. You think of things to do. Our minds are great at thinking about problems or tasks tasks to do. But the reality is, is that okay tasks can be a distraction from the most powerful task the task that actually moves the ball forward in a way that's meaningful. So anyways, the point is, is here are some questions that she asks as she looks at her task list. So first under delete, is it my priority or someone else's? So sometimes write tasks get on our list and it's really someone else who wants 
us to do those things. Do we really want to do those things? I mean, maybe you have to because it's your job, but it's a fair question. Well, five people on the email chain and, you know, the ball's not in your court. You could just delete it, right? Or archive it. Yep, absolutely. Here's another question. What will happen if I don't do it? A lot of times tasks are imagined to be serious, but they're actually not. Well, yeah. And so I'm thinking about my inbox. You know, I, I, uh, I am a, a believer in inbox zero, but I go back and forth on how good I am about actually doing inbox zero. Mm. Mm. And like how you get there. You're saying, yeah, well, or if I get there, right? Like I don't, you know, I don't religiously get down to zero all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm on my shit, I do, but, uh, sometimes I'm not on my shit. And sometimes I start getting overwhelmed because I fall into that trap of reading the email and then not processing it. Right. I need to mm-hmm. either delete it, delegate it, defer it or do it. Yep. Yep. And instead, I just read it and think about it, and I use my <laughs> inbox as a to-do list, which is not what the inbox is for. Yeah. And yep. so, you know, that what will happen if I don't do it? I mean, because what happens if you leave shit in your inbox is you're going to end up not doing those things. I mean, by definition, you're not doing them. You're just leaving them in your inbox. Yep. And so you're not doing it anyway. So, you know, I think that discipline, the the inbox zero discipline, if I wasn't going to do anything with it, I could just hit archive and get it out of my brain. Get it out of your brain. Yeah. It's like you're um, holding on to the belief or hope that it will happen so that you don't have the pain of letting go of it, but it would be better to let it go and move forward. Yeah. And it's like a conscious, it's a conscious decision to not do anything instead of, uh, a passive, you know, default decision not to do anything. I think it's especially, uh, critical when there are, when there's more than just one other person on the email chain, Mm. you know, like, um, we've been talking about some business stuff lately and there's been multiple people on the chain and, um, there have been, Many instances, you might have noticed this, where I just didn't respond. Yep. That's kind of like me. That that actually is frequently me consciously deciding, okay, I was there. I read it. I could have chimed in. But how many emails do we need? Like, if you're not asking me a specific question, I don't have to, like, word vomit my thought process on every single issue. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead, it's just like, well. What'll happen if I don't respond here? Yep. I don't know. One of those guys will pick up the thread and have something to say. Or not. <laughs> That's fine, too. And it's just like, okay, archive. Yep. All right. Okay, so that's the ideal is to just delete it. <laughs> that's the ideal. Yeah, get it out of there. Because that's not my the job. fastest way. <laughs> Somebody else's department. I don't need to do anything. Nothing's going to happen if I don't do shit. Archive. Yep. Okay. The next uh, D is delegate. And here are the questions. What should I not be responsible for? Wow. Sometimes we take on things we shouldn't because someone else could do it or even someone else could do it better. That book, Essentialism, we've talked about it on the podcast multiple times, but that book talks about how when you say no to things, you're saying yes to other things. And that you have to actually develop 
a uh, like a discipline of saying no. No, mm. that's not me. Nope, not my thing. You just can't do mm. it. You don't have to be a dick yeah. about it. You can say it as politely as you want, but to just say, yeah, that's a thing that I am not going to do. Yep. And that book also talked about how people tend to respect you more. People are afraid to say no because they're going to get in trouble for not <laughs> helping or being a team player. And of course, if you say no to everything, that might be true. <laughs> but in a lot of cases, if you're saying no to things that are not where you can contribute the most, people will respect that because they'll realize that in the bigger picture, you're going to end up doing more for the team. Yep. And that's what matters. Next question. Can someone else do it? Can someone else do it better? Can someone else help me even? Can I hire someone to do this? All good questions. Yeah. I mean, especially at, at an executive level, right? If there's, if there are other people who could do it, if we have resources available, then it probably shouldn't be the like primary decision maker in the organization doing things that other people could do. So you should be looking for ways to spread it around as a default. I, I like it that do is last on the list, you know, yeah. like, let me try to peel away all of the ways that I could get, have my time wasted by this item and instead just you know, either ignore it entirely or delegate it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Next one is defer. Can I push it back? Is there a more convenient time? This one I think can be a double edged sword. Uh, sometimes it's very tempting to push back things that are high value. So on my to-do list, I will often tag things that are of high value that I could see really changing what's going to happen next for everything I have going on. And those things often don't come with a deadline. And so I, I like this idea of not overwhelming yourself with too many tasks on one day or in one week or in a month or whatever. But I think you have to be careful here because it's easy to push things back that actually matter the most. Last one is do. So whatever's left, you figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah, I can see this being a good way to address your you know, let's say you get, get back from vacation or get back from the weekend, or maybe it's just Tuesday morning and you've got a, an inbox that's stuffed mm -hmm. or a to-do list that's stuffed and you could kind of go through it systematically. Like, okay, which of these things just, I can straight up delete them and nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Like it's not going to matter if I delete all this slash unsubscribe, right? Like mm -hmm. you're on some dumb newsletter or advertising, whatever, like, you know, even just we really need to normalize taking yourself off of the thread in email. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know what I know you get emails where it's like there's eight people on this thread. Why am I on this? I do not want these emails. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, to just say, hey, guys, you guys got it handled. Take me off of this, please. Move yourself to BCC, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so that you don't get replied all. Anyway, go through and delete them. Then if it's important, but you don't necessarily have to do it, you can delegate it or at least get help for it. Yep. There are things that just don't have to happen right now. There's things that would be more efficiently done tomorrow than today. Yeah. Yep. And so we can just defer those and then 
all the rest of them, then yeah, okay, now you've got your your actual to do list. Yeah, I like it. That's cool. Cool. We have here a uh, we got a little lighter day in the mailbag department, so we have a uh, logical reasoning question on our agenda. Okay, I'm going to read it, and Ben is going to do it. So I'm going to try not to inject too much of my own uh, thoughts here and just see see how Ben reacts. Okay. I will stop at periods for you so you can give me your reaction uh, as we're reading the argument. Remember, yeah. in LSAT, uh, LSAT Demon world, we do not read the question first. It's a gimmicky, just dumb way of doing logical reasoning. You need to attack the argument. So we're going to attack the argument, and then we're going to move on to the question. And then finally, we're going to move on to the answer choices. This uh, question is from test 73, section four. It's question number 14. The environmentalist says pollution from gasoline burned by cars contributes to serious environmental problems. Okay, that's not saying anything new to me. I've always thought that the pollution coming out of cars is a serious problem. I'm waiting for <laughs> where this is going to go though. Yeah. You read that, you go, man, eh, what else is new? Yep. But the cost of these problems is not reflected in gasoline prices. Okay. Let's stop there for a half second. That too is not surprising to me. There's an inefficiency, right? If we were to actually charge drivers, the cost <laughs> that their damage is imposing on the environment, then the tax on gasoline would probably be enormous. It might be, instead of $5 a gallon, it might be $10 a gallon. That extra $5 is trying to clean up all the shit you're putting out into the air. So, so far, none of this is new to me. It makes sense. Yeah, it's hard to put a price on the heat death of the planet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like if we're all of a sudden talking about like the state of Florida being under two feet of water, and, uh, you know, like <laughs> drought and famine and war and all the type of shit that we think, you know, in is going to yeah, unfold, yeah, is potentially yeah. going to be caused by um, global warming. Then we can see those costs. Uh, economists, by the way, call that a negative externality. And okay. mm -hmm. economists would want to price that negative externality into the gas so that when you <laughs> buy gas, you're also paying for the heat death of the planet. Um, yeah, and then we would consume it at a level that would be at least more rational, right? Yeah, yeah. Side note, but I mean, like, when you listen to economists talk about this stuff, it really is kind of amazing that, like, every economist agrees that we should have a carbon tax. Yep. They're all just like, oh, yeah, no, it's clear. You, you, have, to, you have to charge for it. You have to have a carbon tax. Yeah. Okay, well, then why can't we do it? politicians yeah like it's just impossible <laughs> even though every economist agrees yeah yeah that's uh, the clear solution is that you just have to price it in price it in it's done and then people will adjust on their own they'll make their own decisions based on what makes the most sense for them this is yeah. what it really costs do you want to pay for it some people will say yes a lot of people will say no yeah okay um <clears throat> the cost of these problems is not reflected in gasoline prices and hence usually does not affect consumers' decisions about how much to drive. Okay. They don't have to pay for it. So does that mean it doesn't affect their decisions about how much to drive? 
Probably so. Although I would say the fact that it's free might affect their decision and by encouraging them to drive more than they otherwise would have. <laughs> so I'm a little confused by the phrase not affect. It just doesn't seem to be slowing them down. Usually. Yeah. There are some exceptions, of course, you know, super environmentalist, like they realize that gas is wildly underpriced for, for what it should be if it was considering these negative externalities, but they still might be, def, you know, might never drive. No, absolutely. There are tons of people who choose not to drive because they know the problems that incur, even though they don't have to pay for them at the pump. Yeah. Okay. Heavier taxes on gasoline, however, would reflect this cost. And as a result, consumers would pollute less. There's some claims here that are debatable. Would heavier taxes actually reflect this cost? It depends on how heavy those taxes are. Um, would, as a result of these heavier taxes, would consumers pollute less? Depends on what they would do instead, right? Maybe they stop driving, but then instead they start doing something else that's even more polluting. Um, I don't know. But despite those objections I have, this is kind of the conclusion I would come to. So I, I don't totally disagree with this. It seems yeah. to make pretty much sense. And in real life, yeah, every every economist basically agrees. They're like, yeah, yeah. sure, you tax. Yeah. <laughs> Build it into the price with the tax and that'll get the behavior that you want. Yep. Okay. So that was the passage. It feels like the environmentalist is making an argument there. Yep. The environmental, the question says the environmentalist statements, if true, most strongly support which one of the following. So now what are you thinking? Well, this is a supported question, but I'm just going to treat it as which one of the following answers must be true. And as I go through each answer choice, I'm going to ask myself, does this have to be true? Given what I just read, if for any reason it doesn't have to be true, I'm going to cross it out. Okay. And you're letting go of your objections now uh, to, you know, there there were some small objections, right? Yeah. Like, well. Abs yeah, maybe they'll pollute more because they're going to go do something else that's worse. doesn't matter because it says the environmentalist statements, if true. So, Okay. I'm just going to accept that all is true, including the environmentalist's conclusions. Yep. Even if it was an argument, even if you had some, you know, quibbles with it or bigger than a quibble, even if you had big problems with the argument, you still have to accept it all, everything that they said as true, and then yep. just go find something supported by their conclusion or supported by their statement. Yep. All right. A says the cost of pollution from driving should not be reflected in the price of gasoline. Unless what? the amount of pollution produced would be reduced as a result. Okay. So this first part, the cost of pollution from driving should not be reflected in the price of gasoline is going in the exact opposite direction of this passage. So even though there's this caveat, <laughs> the general rule is bad. I'm done. This answer is wrong. B, heavier taxes on gasoline would increase consumers' awareness of the kinds of environmental problems to which pollution from driving contributes. I don't like the awareness in this answer choice. I have no idea whether they would become aware of the problems. They will almost certainly become aware of the higher prices and then adjust their behavior because of that, but they may not know why the prices are higher. So, wrong. 
yeah, they might already be aware of Florida about to go underwater and um, famine and war. And <laughs> they might already yeah. know that these problems exist. They just don't give a shit because they're paying 99 cents a gallon at the pump. Or they Make don't know and they never find out. The pump. Yeah, right. We, we have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. They just might drive less if you taxed gasoline. They might. They don't have to know anything. They just have to know the price of gas. Yep. Okay. C. Consumers would purchase less gas on average if the cost of the environmental problems to which pollution from driving contributes were fully reflected in the price of gasoline. Yeah. I mean, that's what this passage was saying. It feels like exactly what they said. It's literally what they said. I mean, it's a little, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's all, it's easier to accept C because they said if the prices were fully reflected in the gasoline, um, I, they even said that actually, that was one of the things I took a quibble with. They said heavier taxes on gasoline, however, would reflect this cost. And I'm like, really? It depends on how heavy those taxes are, but it doesn't even matter. Um, this is, this is exactly what was said in the passage. So it, great. I guess it's a necessary assumption, right? Cause it says it doesn't actually say that they would purchase less gas. It that says is that true. they would pollute less. They would pollute less. And it's like, well, why? But presumably because, because of gas they're prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Getting less gas. Okay. Yeah, it's going to change the amount they drive. So yeah. So the argument necessarily assumes that they're going to buy less gas. So you're happy with C? I'm happy with it. Maybe that's why this is a most strongly supported question. They're just like, okay, well, we didn't literally say this, but geez, what the hell else would they have meant? So, yeah, it seems like the LSAT used to have more just hard, must be true questions. And now they kind of soften it a little bit in the question and just say, which one, you know, if the statements are true, which one is most strongly supported by those statements instead of which one must be true based on those statements. And that might just be the, you know, legal department at, at LSAC. <laughs> yeah. Like just saying, well, instead of just making them strict, must be, we could have answers that are still strictly must be true, but we just ask the question in a way that is, makes it a little more defensible. Yeah. I don't know. Speculative D the only cost considered by most consumers when they are deciding how much to drive is the cost of gasoline. We have no idea. Way too strong. They may consider other costs. We know that they do consider the cost of the gasoline, but could they consider the wear and tear in their car? Probably. Yeah. Or the opportunity cost, the time that they have to drive, the the safety risk of driving, whatever. Yep. We just don't know that they don't think about those things. E, pollution from gasoline burned by cars will be reduced only if Consumers give more consideration to the cost of that pollution when deciding how much to drive. No, there could be other means by which pollution from gasoline gets reduced. Maybe we run out of oil in the ground. Yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't even thinking about that, but like, what if we just ban driving? <laughs> I mean, they're doing it in some states, yeah. right? Like banning yeah. gasoline cars. Yeah. So the consumers might not know shit like they could just be real dumb and just not have access to a gasoline car anymore. Yeah. Uh, or uh, totally compatible with these facts. They could just say, whoa, $10 for gasoline. Well, I'm not doing that. And they don't know why. Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> they don't have to know that half of that is taxes to try to cover up these negative externalities. Yeah. So, they yeah, they do not have to be considering the cost of pollution, they could just not want to pay the price. Yep. Cool. 
And yep. the answer is C. That's that. Yep. Yep. All right. Um, next item on the agenda is an email from Anonymous. Okay. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I recently took the September LSAT after intense studying for three months with LSAT Demon. My diagnostic was in the 140s and my practice tests before the September LSAT were spanning from 160 to 163. Long story short, I got a 158 in September, which was a little lower than I expected. It is the 25th percentile for SMU, my main goal school. I have since decided to take a year or two to work and give myself another chance to study for the LSAT. Okay, great. I know I made the mistake of taking the September LSAT when I wasn't ready because I felt pressured to apply to law school right away. Now I want to make more time to study and reach a higher score, ideally 165 to 170 range. I'm unsure how my 158 will look if I score significantly higher on my second attempt. (laughs) Do you think that the 158 on my record will hurt my chances at law schools like UT Austin and George Washington? Schools I would like to apply to if I can get high enough, a high enough LSAT score. My current GPA is a 3.98. Mm. Thank you. Wow. Okay, great. Great GPA. Yeah. Um, don't make your 3.98 sad. A 158 was going to make your 3.98 sad. Like you would have mm-hmm. got into SMU, but they would have charged you full price. If you get into the 170s, like you're not even going to want to go to SMU anymore. I don't think. No. SMU, that's Southern Methodist. Is that right? I, I don't know. I'm going to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. Anonymous, they don't care about lower scores. They care about your highest score. Um, many law schools say that explicitly. Other law schools just do it in fact. And it's... uh very apparent when you start looking at their 509s. SMU is ranked 60th in the country. Their LSAT range is narrow. 25th percentile, 158. 75th percentile, 164. There's only six points to, you know, from the 25th to the 75th percentile. So half their school is between 158 and 164. And uh, the rock stars are above 164. And those people are, I'm sure, going to be getting scholarships. Looking down the 509 report, 97% of students at SMU get a grant. 97. (laughs) Most of those are scammer ships. Uh, 78% of the class is getting less than half tuition, but 15% is getting half to full and 4% is getting full. So, you know, there's a 20% of the class, like the people who are above their 75th percentile for LSAT and GPA. And you are above their tw- their 75th percentile for GPA. So, you know, get your 167. And I think SMU now becomes a school that has to give you a full ride or else you're just going to go somewhere better. Like <laughs> they have to be worried about you going to UT instead. And with a 170 something, you're a great candidate for UT, at which point you'd be insane to pay money to go to law school. Uh, in dallas instead did we hammer home that the 158 won't matter at all this correspondent is asking do you think the 158 on my record will hurt my chances (laughs) no no it does not matter yeah it it only would matter if you were competing against someone else who had the exact same high lsat that you have 
the exact same GPA that you have, the exact same everything else that you have. And if they really can't think of any reason to differentiate between the two candidates, then they might look at your record and go, ooh, what's this 158? That's just such an edge case that it's nothing you should ever be thinking about. The I mean, U.S. News and World Report doesn't care about the 158. U.S. World News and World Report will never know about the 158. They'll only know about the highest score because that's what the schools report to the ABA and to the world. And that's what U.S. News uses when they do rankings. All the public, the whole public record is only going to show the highest score that you ever achieved. So schools will see the 158 when you apply. But I think that their spreadsheets are going to take the highest LSAT you ever had, and then they're going to do their index calculation on you, not the low. Yeah. You'll always look better if you take it again and score higher, no matter how many attempts, no matter how poorly or how well you scored in the past. If you can score better, you should take it again. You will always be a better applicant <laughs> with that higher high LSAT on record. Yep. All right. Next one came in um, through support. It says, I guess it's anonymous again. It says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I was able to land a 174 on the September LSAT after a 152 diagnostic. Okay. 22 points improvement. That's nice. I have a lower UGPA, but I graduated in 2019. My UGPA is a 3.5. I'm glad you told us what your UGPA was because people who say they have a lower UGPA can be referring to just about any UGPA. It could have meant 3.8, and it could have also meant 2.5. <laughs> yeah. So the number is what's what really matters here. Okay, I'm wondering if it'd be worthwhile to retake the 174. I'm PTing a 175 average, but have gotten lower one-off scores that have freaked me out. I don't want to score a lower and raise any red flags. As we just told Anonymous above, ain't no red flags. If you retake it and score a 171, um, they're just going to consider you to be a 174. Yep. The only reason I'm considering a retake is because of my low UGPA. However, I have been working as a paralegal for the past three and a half plus years. So there is some distance between uh, me and my UGPA. I mean, not really. (laughs) Like... A couple of years is nothing. Yeah. And uh, some people are 10 years out. Some people are 20 years out. Yeah. It's a number. I don't think that has any bearing on anything whatsoever. I mean, the numbers are the numbers, right? When you apply, they're going to say, okay, do I want a 3.5174 as a member of my class? Like how many years ago it was doesn't show up on the 509. So I don't think they really care very much about that. My goal is a low T14 or anything from a number 10 to number 20 school. I don't know. LSATdemon.com forward slash scholarships. I'm going to put in a 3.5 and a 174 and I'm going to hit update. I'm and doing the I exact see, same thing. Okay. So. And then you're you going to march up, right? You're going to go from a 174 to a 175 and see how things change. <laughs> yeah. On a 174, it looks like you could get a full ride to University of Florida. That's 21st in the country. But I see some more than half scholarships at like UC, uh, sorry, USC, Boston University, Wash U in St. Louis. 
if we bump it up to even a 175, okay, so that added uh, UT Austin more than half, Vanderbilt more than half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At a 176, ooh, Wash U full tuition. That's 16th wow. in the country. More okay. than half now at UCLA. 177 adds a full tuition at Boston University. Yeah. 178 adds full tuition at UCLA. And now you're looking at more than half at Northwestern, Duke, Michigan. So now you're actually, you know, Michigan, 10th in the country. Uh, 179. Yeah, it doesn't really change. More than half at Duke, more than half at Cornell. 180 doesn't really change anything. Those are real differences. Yeah. I mean, they're estimates, but uh, yeah, I'm guessing that a Wash U in St. Louis is not going to be, you know, so thrilled at a 3.5 174, but a 3.5 178, they definitely might be. Yeah. We just recently got an update. Uh, this actually isn't on the agenda, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, we got an email from Lily Taylor hmm. um, okay. that said, uh, I know you've talked about Wash U's scholarship ranking climbing strategy on the show before. It would seem it's about to pay dividends. They released their stats for the class of 2025 today. And I have a link here for that. The median okay. LSAT jumped from 170 to 172, and their 75th percentile also rose two points from 171 to 173. That's right in line with top 10 schools. And Lily speculates, I'd be surprised if their U.S. News & World Report ranking doesn't get a bump. Depends on what happens to all the other schools around them. But yeah, that's, that's a big factor. That's why until it came up, I didn't put it on the agenda just because... I was thinking, um, and here I'll paste it into the agenda for you, Ben, if you want that link. But um, I didn't add it to the agenda at first because that was my immediate response was, well, let's see where the where the medians go at all the other competitor yeah. schools, because I do get the sense that uh, I don't know why, but since COVID, um, LSAT scores have gone up. Since COVID, which is also right when the demon really took off. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I wonder. Yeah. No, um, not taking entire credit for the increase. Uh, there's been not some 100%. real changes, right? So like yeah. the, the main changes, I think, are people working from home, studying from home. I think it's vastly more efficient. You know, yeah. like yeah. It, if if I had a boss telling me, no, you got to come back to the office, I'd be like, fuck you. Like, uh, -uh. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Yeah. Not, you know, and uh I do. I do. And now not to say that there's not some reasons why people need to go back to back to work or back to school in person, but for um, professional people, you know, for for people who are going to be on their bullshit. Uh, and I know lawyers who definitely fit that description. I mean, if you tried to tell Cole Black that she had to go back to the office, she'd be like, are you fucking insane? What? <laughs> I'm working 12 hours from my desk at home. If that's not good enough for you, then fuck off. And um, I have a feeling that that's what many of like the ballers in the world are going to do. Right. It's just like, no, I know my value and you're not getting me back into the I'm not going back into the rat race. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not a commuter. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. That's a digression. But the, the point is, like, 
our students, I think, are more efficient at LSAT studying now because they don't have to commute to work anymore or commute to our classes anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why scores might have gone up. Another reason why scores, especially at the top end, might have gone up is that they they did change the balance of scoring on the test uh, since the LSAT flex and now the new just online LSAT. I mean, I think they made the LSAT easier at the top end. They made the LSAT easier because they increased the weighting of the games. Yep. Games is what people can ace. And now they're a third of the test instead of 25% of the test. It's and, and the weird thing is, and you've mentioned this 300 times on this show, but the silence <laughs> about that, given all the, the concern that they have about, you know, validating questions, validating the test, change the balance of the test. No big deal. They, yeah, they, they did. They, they just, they dropped one section of logical reasoning. They then therefore made games worth 33% of the test instead of 25% of the test. Games is the section that you really can perfect. I mean, I'm in, I did that, that free class yesterday. The one, uh, uh, how, what's it take to score 170? I thought it was awesome because Lily, Abigail and Eric were all there. So like I had each of them talk about what, you know, they had to do to score 170. And I gave my perspective and, when it, I let them all go first and when it came to be my turn, I said, um, well, it hasn't been said yet, but I think we all agree that you probably need perfect logic games if you want to score in the 170s. And even more so now that they increased the weighting of the logic games, like if you're not getting to perfect on the games, it, good luck. Uh, you got to be really extra perfect on the logical reasoning and the reading comprehension. To try to make it to 170s, hell of a lot easier to do it via the games, right? So that's another reason why those scores are up. Yeah. Anyway, to get back to Anonymous and uh, their chances in the top 20 law schools, if you think you can score higher and you say you're averaging 175, yeah. (laughs) Like, I, I, I I don't, can you imagine telling them, don't bother? No, we just saw the numbers come in, which also means your chances of admission are going up. I mean, schools are more likely to give you a full scholarship after you get to a 178 than before. That means you're also more likely to get in and more likely to get in in other places, which you can use as leverage when you're deciding where to go. I would go for it. There's no downside and a lot of upside. That's always the case. Yeah, I mean, you're freaking out about the one, the lower one-off scores, right? This is a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragedy of, uh, like the, the way you're perceiving it Mm -hmm. because you're averaging 175. So you're probably scoring 175 or higher half the time or more than half the time. And you're, but you're, the thing that's worrying you is that there's also a 172 or a 173 mixed in there. Who Mm -hmm. gives a shit? They don't care. Like you're still going to be a 174 in their spreadsheet if you do put a 171 onto your record. But if you score a 175 or six or seven or eight, then you're immediately going to be that higher number in their spreadsheet. Yeah. So you're worrying about an essentially non-existent downside and it might prevent you from this very real upside. 
which also is so much more likely than the non-existent downside. You got to take it again. Write us back. Let it let us know how it went. But I, I think you're going to be happy if you take it potentially multiple more times. Yeah. And again, remember, if any school ever asks you, you know, to explain why you took why did you take it so many times or explain why there is a 15 point jump, you know, you, you just simply say, I knew I could do better. So I took it again. Yep. Or my practice tests indicated I could do better. So I took it again. All right. Last one here. Um, we got a bit of a shorter show today. Uh, last one here from uh, zoning out. You want to read it? Yep. I estimate that I spend about 15% of my time on practice sections and tests zoned out. Well, that ain't good. And not doing anything productive. I have a score in the low 170s on record, and I'm averaging roughly 174 on practice tests in the demon. I'm definitely leaving points out there, but no combination of rest, substances, and or determination has succeeded in fixing this. What do you want me to do? Secondly, the demon is exceptional. I had no idea what I was missing when I just did test after test in Law Hub in preparation for my first try at the LSAT. How do you avoid zoning out? It's a tricky one, huh? I mean, I think the first thing to do is to be aware of it. You're aware that the issue exists. If you've been trying to solve it with, uh, well, I mean, sleep's important. You got to make sure you're getting your sleep. Determination is important. This is not a career for people who want the easy path. So those things I would say are necessary. The substances, I mean, I don't know what substances you're talking about, but um, not recommended to, you know, like hyper abuse caffeine and or Ritalin or whatever. Um, you got to solve it <laughs> in your own brain. I, I just don't, I don't know about smart drugs for this test. But the awareness and then what what do you do, Ben, when you become aware of the zoning out? Well, part of that awareness is when does this happen? I mean, I guess zoning out, this correspondent is aware on some level that he or she is zoning out. But like what triggers that? And can you almost plan for it and then come back? Yeah, it's the uh, gentle return to the task at hand, right? And the task at hand is the the passage in front of you or the sentence in the passage in front of you or the word in the sentence in the passage in front of you. And you just got to, it's all about catching yourself because when you catch yourself, I think you're going to realize, oh, I'm not doing anything right now. I need to be doing things right now. Let's get back to business. Is there a way to practice being aware meditation yeah yeah there's yep. apps like calm and sam harris's app which is called what again i don't know <laughs> sam harris's <laughs> meditation app um yep. there's also uh headspace there's all kinds of mindfulness shit out there that you could look into and yeah i mean you you really are the my understanding of the entire practice of meditation is basically just to, to, to be more conscious of the, of your mental processes. And so if you develop a mindfulness practice, then you might 
catch yourself in those moments of zoning out a little more readily and then be able to, without judging yourself, without letting it like impact your whole performance, you just kind of go, oh, there I go again. I'm off, you know, I'm fantasizing about what I'm going to eat for dinner or having these terrors about my whole existential career crisis, you know, and it's like, okay, well, either one of those is not answering this question. So let's just notice it and then gently just kind of come back to one word, one sentence, one passage. I don't know if I have a whole lot else to offer besides that. Yeah, neither do I. I think physical stuff can help a lot too. Um, you know, like exercise. Well, yoga is like ultra meditative, you know, I mean, yoga, like you're, especially if you're doing like a, a restorative or yin type of a thing where you're like holding like some kind of uncomfortable, like hip stretch kind of a thing, you know, you're like in pigeon pose and it's like, Whoa, that is a position that my hip joint is not accustomed to. And that I can feel that like a lot. (laughs) And, you know, and then you just kind of like train yourself to notice it, but be okay with it and notice your mind spinning off in a thousand directions, but then just kind of come back to like, follow your breath and just, you know, stay present, I guess. Hopefully that's helpful. Thank you everybody for writing in. You can be LSAT famous, uh, get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about LSAT demon, you can email really the greatest customer service team in the world, uh, help at lsatdemon.com. Check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. Uh, that was episode 372 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>